Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise. With lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. Welcome to Wisconsin Legends. I am Mike Huberty, the owner of American Ghost Walks Haunted History Tours in Wisconsin, Illinois, Minnesota, California, Puerto Rico, and Hawaii, and I'm here with Jeff Finnup from Badgerland Legends, where I bring you a tale from Wisconsin daily. All right, check that out at Instagram, Badgerland Legends. And Facebook, too. Today, we're talking about one of the most notorious Wisconsin criminals of all time. Not just the 20th century or whatever, just of all time. And that is the butcher of Plainfield, Ed Gein. The Plainfield ghoul. Which is appropriate, too, that they called him that, because a ghoul is someone that, you know, hangs around a cemetery and, you know, digs up the bodies and everything. And that's exactly uh, the kind of stuff that Ed Gein did. Now, I grew up in, in the Milwaukee area, so my serial killer was Dahmer. But, Jeff, you didn't grow up that far from Plainfield, did you? I grew up about 20 minutes outside of Plainfield. Um, so it was my old stomping grounds, and there was some Gein lore abound. And I could tell you about that as we get into it. Okay, looking forward to hearing about it. So, as we discuss Ed Gein, let's start going through... His family, obviously, his mother plays a big part. His, you know, his dad plays a big part, too. So that's where I think we should start the story. Um, his father's birth, 1873, uh, George Philip Gein uh, is born near La Crosse, Wisconsin. His family lives in Coon Valley, which is, uh, you can still drive through Coon Valley on your way out of La Crosse. It's, it's like, one of the little coolies that yeah. you, you drive through. Right, exactly, the Coulee Valley. It's about, uh, you know, 10 to 15 minutes outside of La Crosse. And so the thing is, is that George's life starts out tragic right away. He's six years old. It's 1879. And his parents and older sister get in their covered wagon and they start going towards the city to, to pick up some supplies. When a flash flood comes in, and uh, it kills George Gein's parents and his sister. And so he's orphaned at six years old, forced to live with his grandparents and, and stuff. And so George Gein, Ed's father, starts off with a tragic tale when he's orphaned when he's six years old. Uh, 1878, Augusta Wilhelmina Lerka is born She's got half a dozen siblings. She comes from this big, proud German farm family uh, in the La Crosse area. And they're very Lutheran, is their religion. And she's a very, very religious girl from the start. And so um, they meet in La Crosse in the 1890s, December 4th. Augusta and George get married 
in lacrosse. December 4th, 1899. So right before the turn into the 20th century, uh, Ed Gein's parents get married in lacrosse. Uh, 1901, Ed's older brother, Henry, is born, named after the father, Henry George Gein. And then August 27th, 1906, uh, Ed is born in lacrosse, and that's where they spend their first few years. Augusta and George own a grocery store, and it's interesting, in the beginning, George is listed as the owner of the grocery store, and he starts retreating into booze, and so George Gein kind of becomes an alcoholic. His wife is a very strong-willed religious woman. She senses weakness in George and kind of relegates him to the sidelines. He's always had trouble keeping a job, but they got together and he was Lutheran too. And she felt it might be a good enough match. But then when they get together, George just wastes so much of his money on the bottle that by the, um, the lacrosse directories, in the 1910s, George is now listed as a clerk on the grocery store, and Augusta is listed as the owner. Okay. Power move. Right. And so they're in the city of La Crosse, which, I mean, it's a town of, you know, 60,000 people today. 1908 or whatever, it's not quite that big, but it's still too big for Augusta. And so she doesn't like the big city, and she wants to sell her the grocery store and they want to move somewhere where she thinks they can do something that's more respectable, have a farm, get away from the sinful temptations of, of lacrosse city life. Now, I lived in lacrosse for a few years, so there are some sinful temptations in that city. But uh, this is from Harold Schechter's book, Deviant, written in 1989 about Ed Gein and a little bit about Augusta. About sexual matters, Augusta's views were characteristically extreme. Sex unsanctified by marriage was an unpardonable sin, an abomination. Between husband and wife, carnal relations were a loathsome duty to be tolerated for the sake of procreation. She was revolted by the very thought of the act. Increasingly, Augusta's perceptions were becoming warped into something very much like madness. The world was a sink of corruption and lacrosse, a city of Babylonian excess. The women she saw on the streets with their brazen airs and shameless smiles were no better than harlots. Still, she craved the solace of a child, and so she allowed her despised husband to come to her bed. Sounds like a real peach. Right. <laughs> sounds, sounds like we know why George was drinking all the time. That might explain it. And uh, so she is a very strong woman. She obviously feels, like most other women, are sexual temptresses, harlots, whole kind of thing. George, she figures, is a waste. She's taken charge. She sells the grocery store, and then they want to get a farm in Plainfield. Now, Eddie, 1914 is when they moved to Plainfield, and he's, you know, not quite eight years old, uh, and they're there. And he's good in school. He's intelligent, but he is small for his age. And he's got this like skin growth under his left eye that makes it look a little lazy. 
you can see when you see pictures of Ed Gein, you see like one eye is just a little bit mm-hmm. under the other. And uh, his classmates think he's weird because he he's laughing to himself like he's got his own kind of jokes. And he's got a hard time making friends. But when he does try to make friends, his mother discourages it anyway. And um, he does go to school, but he only goes until seventh grade. And even one of those years, uh, when they first moved to Plainfield, they're on a farm that's too far away from school. So he's got like a gap year. And then they move to the farm where Ed Gein would eventually commit his crimes and, and everything not too long afterwards. And so he goes to school for a couple more years. And by seventh grade, which most of us are 13 or 14, he's done. That's the last year he goes. Yeah. And at that age, in that time period, a kid, they got enough learning, you know, in kindergarten, if they had that, through sixth grade, and then they're pretty much going to take over the farm. Right. That's a, that, that, so he can read, and he mm-hmm. can do basic math, yep. and he can do the things on the farm. So he's skilled enough to be able to do that kind of stuff. And, and plus, she doesn't want to make him friends. So every time he does try to make friends, his mother kind of quashes it, because those people could lead him into sin and, and temptation. Now, in Ed's youth, we have a couple different apocryphal stories. And one, I wasn't able to find in the confession. This may have come out to to doctors later on, but I couldn't find the actual source where his quote came from. But there's a lot of different books talk about it. And so I call it apocryphal because I wasn't able to find the source. And I read the, I read his entire like 225 page confession and we'll get to that later. But this is from a, uh, a dissertation by Christina Molinari, Florida Gulf Coast University, necrophiliac and necrophagic serial killers, understanding their motivations through case study analysis. And she quotes, when Ed Gein was a teenager, he became sexually aroused when he witnessed his parents butcher a pig. He was also preoccupied with anatomy books and anthropological accounts of cannibalism. That part we know is true. His brother was unsuccessful in getting Gein to socialize and openly ridiculed his dependency on their mother. And so you're like, okay, well, he's really into anatomy and anthropological accounts of cannibalism. You're listening to the Wisconsin Legends podcast about Ed Gein, so that's not that weird. He wants to socialize, and his brother is trying to get him out of his mother's grasp. Okay, here's the sentence, though. When Gein was a teenager, he became sexually aroused when he witnessed his parents butcher a pig. I think most of us... Most of us would be mortified by that, <laughs> right? but he was sexually aroused. So There's a sign of deviance there that happens. There's another apocryphal story where I wasn't able to find the confession or his personal quotes where they say that when Ed was 12, his mom caught him in the bathtub touching himself. And so she turned on scalding hot water to burn his genitals to let him know that you're not supposed to, that's a, that's a sin, onanism or whatever is it is sin in the eyes of God. And so Ed's not allowed to date. His brother's not allowed to date. He's, I mean, his mother reads them stories often and, and she sticks with the fire and brimstone stories. So when she goes and tells the Bible stories, it's old Testament, you know, God turning people into pillars of salt and stuff. Like Sodom that. and Gomorrah. Yeah. Or it's, the book of Revelation, 
whore Babylon, things like that. It, it's, it's the end of the world and God punishing the sinners or God punishing the sinners in the Old Testament. There's not a ton of Jesus and forgiveness in uh, Augusta Gein's religious instruction for her boys. That doesn't stop Ed from loving his mom. I mean, she is his best friend. She is his life. So other than his brother, he really doesn't have any friends outside of maybe some schoolmates that he interacts with on a day basis and his mom. And it sounds like dad's kind of checked out on the bottle or preoccupied with the farm. Every time you hear about George Gein, it's that he's drunk in the corner. He's completely, he's isolating himself from his family to the point where he doesn't respond even to Augusta most of the time. And, and so, I mean, he's got different careers through it, not careers, we get different little jobs through his life. He's a tanner. He does all these kind of things, but nothing's good enough for Augusta. She treats him as a useless, you know, jerk. And, you know, it's not a loving husband-wife relationship. And even, you know, when you think of Henry and Ed in how they're dealing with their mother, I mean, she's their best friend. She doesn't want them to have other friends. She doesn't want them to have girlfriends in particular. I mean, they both are lifelong bachelors. And she, and nothing's good enough for her. You know, so even when they think they're doing something right, uh, there's a story in Schechter's book where uh, she gives Ed some money to buy something. And he goes and he loses the money. He's a little kid. And he's just sitting there crying, thinking not that he lost the money, not that he couldn't get the stuff, but what's he going to tell his mom when he gets home? And so Augusta rules the family with an iron fist. And now they are isolated out on this farm, which isn't a small farm. It's like 180 acres. So it's a, it's a decent sized piece of property that they have. It's a real farm. Mm-hmm. And still, it's never a great farm either. They're never making a lot of money. And they're always having trouble. And so eventually, 1940, uh, George Gein dies. Complications of alcoholism, heart failure. Uh, He's 66. You know, Ed's only 34. Henry's uh, 39 when his dad dies. And then you would think things would start getting better or whatever, because maybe some of uh, Augusta's rage is she's not got no reason to be mad anymore, but things don't get that much better. Like now she focuses all of her attention just on Ed and Henry. And then May 6th, 1944. Oh, let's go back real quick. 1942 is the only year that Ed actually leaves Plainfield. He goes to Milwaukee for a physical because he's going to get drafted for the Second World War. Okay, I was wondering where the service came in for his age. Yeah. I know, like my grandfather grew up on a farm, central Wisconsin, very similar to Gein, and he was the only boy in the family, so he got an exemption from the draft because he worked in ag, and it was an ag exemption. Sure. But Gein being the younger brother... He, right. he would have been eligible for that draft. And he's 36. And in the Second World War, they drafted people up until the mid-40s. Oh, wow. 
so Ed goes, and then he, he fails the physical examination because of his eye. And also, I mean, he's small, but and now here's the thing. I wasn't able to find a really reliable source for Ed's height. In Schechter's book, he describes Ed as 60 inches tall. Now that's five feet. Yeah, that's like, tiny for a guy. Right, that's, I mean, that's tiny. That's small for a woman. And, but that's tiny for a man. And in other places, I heard 5'7", which is medium height. We wouldn't say that person is, you know. Yeah, in, in the incarceration photos, you see him, and he looks of, I would say, average height or slightly below. Yeah, so maybe, maybe you, small. You wouldn't think that he's diminutive, but you also wouldn't think he's tall. You'd right, think he's, five foot, you would think that he's tiny. You yeah. Know? Like, you know, close Petite, to dwarven. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but with the hunched shoulders and the lazy eye and the kind of keeping to himself. And then he's got this weird smirk most yeah. of the time. Was not fit for combat. Right. Not fit for combat. But his IQ is above average. So his IQ comes out in, the, in like the army test to like 106 or whatever. So he's intelligent enough to go, but there's something physically that they feel is wrong with him. And so, uh, May 6th, 1944, tragedy strikes the farm, and Henry Gein dies. Ed and Henry are going out to do some controlled fires on the property. That, you know, that whatever you would do, if there's some brush or something, sometimes you do some controlled fires to get rid of it. A lot of times you have overgrowth in the prairie, so what they'll do is they'll control the burn and just go by and slowly burn through the field. They uh, create fire breaks so the fire doesn't get out of control or spread to the woodlands. So it does create a lot of smoke. You'll see a lot of signs just in central Wisconsin are right around where we are. It's a prescribed burn today. And you'll see the fire or the smoke coming off of it. Which is, you know, it's interesting. So there, there are these... Control fires are regularly happening. This is the 1940s. This is going on. The thing is, though, is that Ed calls the police and says that Henry's missing, that they went out to start working on the fire stuff. They split up, and his brother never came back. Now, when the police come, Ed then leads them directly to Henry and says, like, okay, we found him or whatever. And he, and then the police like, well, he must have died by uh, asphyxiation from the smoke of the controlled burn, even though they say they see some bruises on his head. So this is the first time that Ed is engaged in something suspicious. So he's 37 years old, 1944, his brother dies on the property. Ed calls the police, and for some reason, he says he's missing when he calls the police, but when they get there, he can lead them to the body. Okay. And it's small town. It's either Washera County Sheriff, or it's Plainfield PD. Right. It's Plainfield not PD is not, the, like, that's the forensics department. It's not Dexter coming out with a forensic. <laughs> and, and so they just assume, okay, well, this must be something that, you know, Ed's brother died and that's horrible kind of thing but they don't suspect any foul play even though they notice some bruises on the head they think that must have happened in a fall and it's nothing that, nothing to do with ed 
And so his brother dies, and now it's just Ed and Mom. And he's somewhat happy about it because he, it's just, it's finally down to him and his best friend, and they're together. It's them against the world. But she's not very healthy, and she experiences some strokes. Ed's there with her at the hospital every second. And that, you know, the doctors notice it, the nurses notice it. It's that he is the picture of a devoted son and doesn't leave his mother, doesn't leave Augusta alone for a second. And he is ridiculously concerned. So this is about a year after Henry dies. Right. She starts experiencing some small strokes and he thinks she's getting a little better. But then uh, the winter of 1945, this starting into December of 1945, something happens that seems to set her off again. And this is from Schechter's book. In the winter of 1945, the Gein farm still had some livestock, and Augusta announced that they must have straw for fodder. Eddie would go to a neighbor named Smith to arrange for a purchase, and she would accompany him to oversee the transaction. Whenever Eddie told the story afterward, his voice would tremble with fury and grief. As Eddie and Augusta drove into the yard, Smith, a sullen, quarrelsome fellow with a notoriously short temper, was laying into a mongrel puppy with a heavy stick. As the dog yowled in pain, the woman Smith lived with, out of wedlock, according to Augusta, appeared on the porch and began screeching at Smith, gesticulating wildly and begging him to stop. Smith continued beating the pup until it lay dead at his feet, while the woman wept and shrieked curses at him. Augusta was shaken by the scene. Strangely, it was the sight of the woman, quote, Smith's harlot, unquote, Augusta called her, that seemed to upset her most. Less than a week after the incident at Smith's farm, Augusta suffered a second stroke. Then December 29th, 1945, she passes away. What were you going to say there? I was just thinking, what is the significance of that event with the puppy? Obviously, Augusta was more concerned about the potential the for living in sin, right? Than the dude unmercifully beating an animal to death for no just cause. And to me, that significance is you can see that she's deranged. That this, she's setting the example of she's more worried about this guy living in sin or whatever than she is about him beating an innocent dog to death right in front of them. And all Ed can think of is how it upset his mother so much he feels like it set off the events that led to her death. Okay. And that's on December 29th, 1945. She dies following a series of several more strokes. And Ed can't control his grief. While his brother's death was front page news, his father even got a fairly large obituary. Augusta's obituary is very brief. The um, funeral's attended by a couple of her siblings from the lacrosse area and nobody else and Ed. And he can't control his crying. She was his entire world, and now she's gone. And So within the span of about six years, Gein lost his entire family. Yeah. So, I mean, it, 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 I mean, his dad dies in 1940, his brother dies in 1944, and then his mom dies in 1945, and now he is completely alone. 
There's no one in the world that he is close to or he loves or loves him left anymore. So he, I mean, he goes to the cemetery where she's buried and he just sits over her grave and he prays over her grave. And uh, he believes that if he wishes and prays hard enough, she'll come back to life. And he's, con- he's convinced of this. This is another from um, Schechter's book. He states that the death of his mother, he has feelings that things around him were unreal. At one time, shortly after her death, he felt that he could raise the dead by willpower. He also stated that he heard his mother talking to him on several occasions for about a year after she died. His mother's voice was heard while he was falling asleep. He again admitted that for a period of time after her death, he felt he could arouse the dead by an act of willpower. He claimed to have tried to arouse his dead mother and was disappointed when he was unsuccessful. He also admitted this sort of thing with some of the bodies, which he later was found to have exhumed. When asked about the responsibility for his eventual grave robbing and stuff, it goes back to this idea that there was a power in him that could raise the dead. He stated that it was all due to a force built up in me. He feels that this force was in the nature of an evil spirit and that influenced him. So he, he readily admits that he heard his mother's voice telling him to be good several years after her death, and then on one occasion, he had experienced what was probably an olfactory hallucination with his nose. He smelled what he thought was decaying flesh in the surrounding environment of his property. And he even said that he had seen faces in the pile of leaves. Now, his mother is a strict Lutheran. There's no Lutheran church in Plainfield. Interestingly enough, or there wasn't at the time. So she wasn't able to take Ed or George to church uh, because she would only go to a Lutheran church because there's none in Plainfield. So she would deliver her own version of the Lutheran beliefs to her kids. And there's obviously, you know, when Ed talks about he feels that he can raise the dead with an act of willpower, uh, if he prays enough, well, that's Jesus and Lazarus. So, uh, Gospel of John, chapter 11. Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? They take away the tombstone. Then Jesus looks up and says, Father, I thank that you have heard me. I knew you will always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let them go. Now, Martin Luther, in his own sermons, when he was talking about Lazarus, he even says, Lazarus must have had faith because without faith, it's impossible to please God. This is from uh, Dr. David Growler's lecture on Martin Luther talking about Lazarus. And Luther concludes that the parable of Lazarus demonstrates the following. For we must all, like Lazarus, trust in God and surrender ourselves to him to work in us according to his own good pleasure and be ready to serve men. And although we do not suffer from such sores and poverty, yet the same mind and will must be in us that we're in Lazarus cheerfully to bear such things wherever God wills it. So, He's got his own. Lazarus believed he was raised from the dead. 
So Ed's filled with some of these ideas from his mother, filled with these stories. If you only believe enough, you can make the miracle happen. That's Ed over the gravestone. That's Ed, you know, talking about his, that's Ed praying for his mother's, praying for his mother's soul. And another interesting thing that separates Martin Luther's beliefs uh, and the Lutheran beliefs, perhaps from other people uh, who, other religious people who lived in Plainfield, Luther believed that once you die, your soul is sleeping or whatnot until it's eventually called forth the judgment day. So the physical body is what holds the soul, and your physical body will be reunited with your soul on judgment day when Jesus calls everybody up the righteous to, for judgment. And it's not like the Catholics that go, like, your soul's got to pay off a few years in purgatory, or saints that you can pray to who will then do something nice for you to God or whatever. It's that any, any human, their soul is sleeping between the time they die and the time they're raised up. So ghosts are impossible. So praying or hearing your mother's voice, like, so Ed Gein did not believe that a Ouija board, he could talk to his mother through a Ouija board. He did not believe that he could talk to a medium or a psychic and then that that medium would be able to talk to his mother. So according to Martin Luther's idea of the soul, his mother was dead until Judgment Day. The only way that she could come back is if her body came back. Okay. And how steeped and how much Ed believed in this whole Lutheran idea and how, how much he was in theology, of course, is questionable. But if you look strictly at like the stuff that his mother might have grown up with, the actual sermons and beliefs of Martin Luther— he would not be like he wouldn't be able to go see like like Mary Todd Lincoln came to Waukesha, Wisconsin, to try to talk to a psychic medium during the spiritualist, spiritualist movement, movement, yeah, to see if she could talk to Abe Lincoln. Right? Ed would not be able to go see a medium to talk to his beloved mother. The only way she could come back in that religious worldview was if her body came back with her soul. He sat over the grave. And it's in 1947 when Ed starts, well, Robin Graves. It's, it's, it's when he starts becoming the, the ghoul of Plainfield. He starts going over and he's visiting local cemeteries at night to dig up the freshly buried remains of women who remind him of his mother. And it's, it's middle-aged women. It's like heftier women with ger- like he German stock. He even talks about that. One of his future victims, he talks about, you know, he talks about it. It's like, yes, she was German stock. So, he, so it, hardy, hardy German ladies. Yes. That kind of like that Broomhilda or whatever. That's the kind of people that Ed starts digging their flesh up. And at the time, he's also completely fascinated with stories of headhunters and cannibals. And that's not weird for the 1940s. So if you guys been to the Milwaukee Public Museum, I mean, they got shrunken heads right there. And that, that those were all exhibits that were created in the 60s and stuff. But 
Uh, this is from Outside Magazine. Uh, a woman named Mary Roach. She's talking about the weird, wild business of shrunken heads. And she's talking about a 1940s brochure. Says, my four years with the headhunters of the Amazon. Announces the cover of a circa 1940 brochure detailing a lecture that a man named Gustav Struve would give for a fee at your local Shriners Club or Ladies Auxiliary. The pamphlet describes him as the sole survivor of an ill-fated botanical expedition. He says he was taken captive by headhunters, he married the chief's daughter, and learned the secret process of shrinking human heads and even entire bodies. So this was at the time where, like, Nat Geo, National Geographic magazine, was really taking steam. Guys like Roy Chapman Andrews were off in the Asian continent looking for lost tribes or you know, the mysteries yeah. of, of the undeveloped world. This is like the golden age, we talk about the golden age of anthropology. I mean, this and, and some of the things, I mean, and also the pulp magazines are coming back. These people are writing stories of people dealing with scary, it's, it's the beginning of Indiana Jones. In, in the Nazi era. Right. So Ed's fascinated with these stories in adventure magazines and detective magazines of people fighting these savage tribes that do things like headhunting and cannibalism. And, and this is starting to, like, bits of these anthropological, the real rituals that people had, which may have been respectful towards the death. It was their way of dealing with death. Mm-hmm. It was their way of understanding the afterlife and all those kind of things. Then it gets sensationalized into these stories and they become dangerous and evil the other. And you mentioned the Nazi era too. And so he's also fascinated with the stories of Nazi atrocities. And they're also coming out in the late 1940s. In fact, he's specifically interested in Ilsa Cook, who's the inspiration for the movies Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS, uh, where they kind of create her as this like sexy psycho, you know, with her breasts cleavage coming out and stuff like that and that she's this concentration cap commander but she was even too much for the germans uh the real ilsa cook in that uh, she and her husband were the commanders of the buchenwald concentration camp which uh, there eventually there'd be you know tens of thousands of jews that went there and and roma people and, and all these kind but also german prisoners and so it, before Buchenwald became really a concentration camp, it was also a prison camp. They even had doctors that did medical experiments. One Danish doctor famously did a medical experiment trying to reverse homosexuality by organ removal of men. And interestingly enough, so Ilse Cook, known as the Witch of Buchenwald, her stories are about that she made a lampshade out of human skin that, you know, she worked with the doctors to take off skin of bodies that had tattoos on it. And there's even a couple of testimonies that she did have the lampshade of human skin. This is Dr. Gustav Wagner, a political prisoner. He was the, um, like the lead prisoner in their infirmary of the people that had to, that were forced to help out the commandant. And he explained one day at the same time, 1941, the camp commandant Cook and the SS doctor Mueller appeared at my work command in the infirmary. At that time, a lampshade made of tanned, tattooed human skin was being prepared for Cook. 
Cook and Mueller chose among the available tanned, parchment-thin human skins the ones with suitable tattoos for the lampshade. From the conversation between the two, it became clear that the previously chosen motifs had not pleased Ilsa Cook. So she didn't just want a lampshade made out of human skin. She specifically wanted certain tattoos on the lampshade. And the, the former skin that was given to her was not good enough. He then says the lampshade was then completed and handed over to Cook. Ackerman, jo- Joseph Ackerman, is a secretary of the camp doctor. And he says he delivered the lamp and he testifies in court in 1950. The lamp foot was made from a human foot and shin bone. And on the shade, one saw tattoos and even nipples. On the occasion of the birthday party of Cook, August 1941, he was tasked by the camp doctor Hoven to bring the lamp to the Cook's villa. And this he did. One of the party guests told him later that the presentation of the lamp had been a huge success. The lamp immediately disappeared after the SS leadership learned about it, and Elsa Cook could not be accused of making the lampshade. Okay, now this is the story that's in the, that's in the salacious, you know, the sensationalized stuff, the Nazi atrocities, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're, our boys are fighting the Hun, and this is the kind of stuff that they do. This is the kind of, these are the kind of stories that fascinate Ed Gein. Now, whether or not the lampshade was actually made of human skin is, you know, that, that is a, a different kind of uh, controversy. Somebody who is a, um, Dr. Harry Stein, the curator of the book involved, like the, the artifacts in the book involved camp, says that the, the authenticity was only checked after the end of the German Democratic Republic. So East Germany is where the, the stuff was. And I had to translate this from German, so excuse my, <laughs> excuse me, was that right? It's like, the report prepared said that the lampshade cannot be identified serologically as a human species. This may be plastic that was produced for lampshades at a similar time. Ultimately, however, it cannot be completely ruled out that biological material is involved. So this guy says, like, we can't prove that it's human skin and stuff like that. But that's in 1947, the stories coming out are that Ilsa, she-wolf of the SS, is a psycho. And then he's reading stories of cannibals and shrunken heads and all that, and he's fascinated with them. And, you know, after Ed's mother dies, he starts taking odd jobs around the town. And so he helps people with some crops. He's a babysitter. And you, you, you still talk to people who say, like, oh, yeah, my uncle or whatever, like Ed Gein, was the family babysitter. Now, my growing up in Wisconsin Rapids, I had a best friend from kindergarten through middle school. And his family, his mom's side of the family, grew up in Plainfield. And his grandma was said to have roller skated with Eddie. I don't know how to verify that, but that was his family legend. Is that all right? Grandma used to roller skate with Eddie Gein. Well, and and we'll talk more about roller skating in a little bit, because that may not be that may not be too far out of the question. But he he did babysit and take care of local kids. He found it easier to relate to kids than he did to adults, and he would tell them these stories. Yeah, he and share the cannibal adventure story. And Eddie was thirteen years her senior. 
So there's about a 13 year age gap. I'm not sure at what age she went roller skating with him, but it just seems like it's kind of a big gap. But seeing that he may have been a babysitter right, in a small town and, you know, it's plausible. Yeah. Well, I've, I mean, I've had people more than one on the Wisconsin Dells ghost tour when I've led the Wisconsin Dells ghost tour that I've said that that's part of their family story growing up in Plainfield was that Ed Gein babysat for their family. And he would take these small jobs. He would enthrall the kids with these stories. It's a little, it was scary enough. Mm-hmm. You know, they're scary and disgusting and shocking and the, and the kind of kids, this kind of stories that kids love about, you know, crazy cannibals and sad, the kind of like exciting adventure story that he loved to tell them. And he was fascinated with detective stories too. In fact, in Ed Gein's Confessions, he talks about how he thought he might have been a good detective himself. Maybe that's because he understood the, the mind of the killer. Sure. So, I mean, 1947, he starts, starts digging up bodies. It's when the, he starts making visits to the Plainfield Cemetery at night. And 1951, you get a, a few years later, and there's two hunters that disappear in Plainfield. Victor Travis and Ray Burgess. And what's only found is a jacket and their dog are found behind in the woods near Gein's property. They're just, they're never found. But 1951, there is a a famous disappearance not too far away from where Ed Gein lives. But it's, it's not until 1954 that Ed gets his first confirmed kill or at least one that he eventually... That he confesses uh, to. ...admits to. And so the town of Bancroft, uh, there is the um, Pine Grove Tavern. And it's a place Ed would stop by every once in a while. It's owned by this, I don't know, larger-than-life woman. She's a German immigrant, Mary Hogan, a larger woman, middle-aged, foul-mouthed, and a bar owner. Okay. Like, so it fits the profile of... Of someone that he'd be interested yep. in. At least physically, maybe not the foul-mouth. Right. Well, I mean, that's an interesting thing, too, because she's looks like Ed's mom, but she's also kind of the polar opposite. There's no way that Augusta Gein would have owned a bar, been like a foul-mouthed party person. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not, she's not drinking. She sees what drink did to George. So Ed stopped by the bar every once in a while. Sometimes he would drink beer. Sometimes he wouldn't, even though, you know, he, he wasn't much of a drinker, but sometimes he would have a, he would have a beer. But this is the story from the Stevens Point Journal on Thursday, December 9th, 1954. Woman's disappearance hints at a slang at Pine Grown Tavern. And here they found a cartridge. Searching the tavern, authorities found a 32 caliber cartridge of the type used in automatic pistols. Two $1 bills and a roll of nickels were found on the floor. A cash box behind the bar and a cigar box used to keep money has been rifled. Neighbors believe Miss Hogan kept a considerable sum at the tavern, but Sheriff Thompson said he had no idea the amount that was missing. A coffee cup was upright in the center of a pool of spilled coffee at a table in the barroom and the chair next to the coffee cup had been tipped over. 
A book was on the table. A few spots of blood were on the floor near the chair, and a trail of blood through which a body had evidently been dragged led from a spot four or five feet from the table to the door, then across the snow to a point where a car or truck had been parked. Pools of blood at the door and at the parking spot indicated where the body had lain. The bar top was clean and glasses were dry, indicating that no one had been in the tavern to buy beer for some time before the shooting. Then, neighbors say Miss Hogan was fearful of strangers and kept the doors of the building locked during the day, opening only for persons she knew. During the evening hours, she ordinarily kept the door unlocked. Sheriff Thompson believed that she was shot while sitting at the table reading and drinking coffee. From her habit of keeping the door locked, he theorizes that she was killed by someone she knew. Now, this crime goes unsolved. There's a whole bunch of different leads to it and stuff, but none are leading them to Ed Gein. It was a place he had stopped by. He was known to Mary Hogan. Maybe not as the world's biggest, best customer, but he was known to her, so she would have let him in. And uh, her body was not found until later. But they had no idea. This is 1954. This is December 1954. This happens. After 1951, the next suspicious disappearance, kind of in the area, is a babysitter in October 24th, 1953. A a 15-year-old girl named Evelyn Hartley vanished in La Crosse. Bloody footprints are found near the house she's babysitting at. Her body is never found. And so there's a big manhunt, and everybody's looking for who took away Evelyn Hartley. And eventually, Ed gets discussed, you know, they, they, they put him in the discussion for he might have been the one He's got ties to lacrosse. They know after he was captured that, you know, he had a fascination. So it points. Does anything point to him going back to lacrosse in that time period? And and he doesn't, and he's completely like, I didn't do it. Yeah. And to think about the logistics of that from Plainfield to lacrosse in that day and age, that's probably a four hour. This is pre-interstate. Yeah. You don't have 3990 and 1218 all the way to lacrosse. Yeah. You have to probably go down a lot of country roads. So it seems less than likely to tie that. Also, a 15-year-old babysitter doesn't fit the description. Unlike. So there's a place where I spent a lot of Friday nights with my parents growing up. Typical Wisconsin fish fry fashion, a place called Kellner International in Kellner, Wisconsin. Okay. So it's about 25 minutes from the Gein Farmstead today. So in 1952, it was owned by a lady named Clara Cad Bates. It was known as Cad's Tavern. So on June 30th of 1952, Now, this is only 18 months before uh, tavern owner Mary Hogan went missing. Okay. Local patron Ed Kineski arrived at the tavern to find the doors locked. According to court records, he heard a woman and a child weeping. Oh, man. 
So he left to get a friend. They came back and they breached the back door. Now, Kaniski and company, they found the severely beaten and dead body of the 76-year-old Cad Bates, who had been living in upstairs quarters. Sure. That's a classic, is that living above the bar you own, yep. the, the, the supper club. So she was bludgeoned to death. Now, the bludgeon or the murder weapon was never recovered. So further investigations into the place revealed that it was a house of ill repute. And rumors swirled about Cad being the madam. So Kaniski was arrested and convicted of the madam's murder. So you think open and shut case, right? Right. He did it. But why would he alert the authorities? So after multiple appeals, the Wisconsin Supreme Court overturned the conviction about 20 years after on the grounds of flimsy and circumstantial evidence. So... Kaniski, he maintained his innocence through his entire stay. So eventually he was exonerated, right? So if Kaniski didn't kill Bates, who did? Well, some speculate that he would have been the first victim of Gein, uh. a 76-year-old tavern owner. Only about 25 minutes from Gein's farm. Now, Bates, she fits the profile of Ed's victims, right? Of Mary Hogan, Bernice Worden. Yeah. And it... A substantial lady, a substantial older lady. Uh-huh. Uh, but this time, she's not just a tavern owner who might be vulgar or whatever or drunk. She's an, a literal whoremonger. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> somebody, somebody who's yeah. setting out prostitutes. In, in the business of... Of running a house. So it's been asserted that Gein had frequented the establishment. I haven't been able to put anything down that said, yeah, Gein was actually there or this is the place. But, you know, he went to Bancroft to visit the tavern of uh, Mary Hogan. Why wouldn't he go the other way to Kellner and visit that tavern? Yeah. So um, now another strange coincidence is Wisconsin writer Robert Block, 1959 novel, Psycho. The main character shares the same surname as Cad, Bates. Oh, yeah. So it's said that elements of Norman's character were speculated to be influenced by Gein. But Block did say in a quote that he discovered how closely the imaginary character I'd created resembled the real Ed Gein in both overt act and apparent motivation. But he's, Block asserted that was just a coincidence. But it's hard to believe that at the same time that Gein was being brought in. Right. Oh, no, we'll talk about Psycho. Yeah. You know, you know, because he's... But I, I just thought that was an interesting connection that... Definitely The Cad Bates, Bates Hotel, Cad Bates, is kind of, kind of... Uh, I won't say syn synchronicity, but at least a kind of a curious coincidence. Well, it's another crime that might be linked to Ed Gein. That's, you know, a famous brutal murder for no reason happens in this small Wisconsin town, not too far away from where Robert Block is even living Yeah, when he writes Psycho in, in Wyoiga. Yeah, only about 40 minutes 
probably from Kellner, 25 or 30 minutes from So that's Plainfield. interesting about Cad Bates yeah. and the potential that Ed might have another victim. And, and so that's, you know, we kind of wanted to talk about these, these other victims that they were suspecting because when they finally bring him in, they try to tie Ed Gein to all of these different missing and unsolved crimes that are happening in, in Wisconsin. In this one being before the Mary Hogan tavern incident, you know, predated by 18 months, it seemed like it was solved. Seemed like Ed Kaninsky, he did it. So that's, right. that's, it's not a, it's not a cold case. It's not an open case. It's, you know, it's open and shut case. Kaninsky did it. So they, at the time, they may have just overlooked it. Well, and just like Travis and the other Hunter and then Evelyn Hartley, it's now it's an unsolved case where the murderer has just gone free this, yeah. this entire time. And so, you know, this leads us to Ed's second victim. And this takes place three years later, uh, Bernice Warden. And so November 16th, Saturday, 1957. Now, Ed's hanging out at the Wardens the night before, and he's teasing Bernice about going roller skating together. Okay, bringing back the roller skating right. thing. Right, so he's, you know, he's hanging out, and, you know, her son is like a big deal in, in the town, and, you know, Ed's hanging out at, at, at Warden's Hardware the night before, talking to both of them, and he even asks her son, are you going to be around tomorrow? And he's like, no, I'm going hunting. It's like, okay. Yeah, it's opening day of hunting season, the Saturday morning uh, in central Wisconsin. It's a tradition. Right. Especially in 1950, pretty much every guy that's 12 or older is going to have a gun in his hand sitting, freezing his ass off at a tree stand. Right. It's just a tradition. So for him to ask that. It's not weird. It's, it's not weird, but it might show that there was some ill intent. Right. So what happens is Ed goes into Warden's Hardware and he brings a jug and he says to Bernice, I'd like to buy some antifreeze. And so he buys the antifreeze and she makes out a receipt. He takes his part of the receipt, she has hers. And so she's got a receipt now that on November 16th, 1957, she sold Ed Gein antifreeze. Then he's like, hey, I'm interested in that rifle over there. Can you show it to me? So she's got a rifle in the hardware store. Like you said, it's not weird for everybody to have guns, especially on a farm in the 1950s, because you have to worry about foxes in the hen house. We mm -hmm. laugh about that, but that's a real thing to them. You got to worry about animals coming in, wolves and all those kind of things that can kill your livestock, attack your livestock. And so you're def defending your life. This is not, maybe they're not worried about intruders. Augusta Gein might be worried about <laughs> intruders, but everybody else, they're just worried about animals and you just got to make sure you kill animals that might yep. threaten and your life. And it was a 22 caliber pistol, which is, you know, a small game gun. Right. He's not breaking out World War II gun. It's here. not heavy ar artillery. It's a utilitarian gun for that they would sell pretty much in any hardware store across the country in 1957 when seven. it happened. And so he asked, he's like, hey, can I take a look at the gun? He's like, sure. He takes a look at the gun. He's got a 22 shell in his pocket. Puts it in. She's off looking at somebody she, like shoveling snow across the street. He shoots her. Hits her in the back of her head. 
and he drags the body out, takes it to his truck, not his car, puts the body in the truck, like closes it up, takes off and goes back to his farm. Now, there is another guy who knows Ed, who bags a deer that day on Ed Gein's property. And he's worried that Ed's going to be angry at him for it because he didn't have the permission to hunt on Ed's property. He's got the buck like laid out across the front of his car, driving back, and then he sees Ed Gein's truck coming. He's expecting Ed to stop and say, what are you Where'd doing? Where'd you get that buck? Instead, all Ed does is wave out the window as he passes. Doesn't stop him, doesn't do anything. This guy thinks that's a little weird, but he's relieved because he was doing something wrong. And he got away with it. And but So he's the next person to see Ed coming back to the property. Okay. Bernice's son returns from his day of hunting, goes to the store, finds, well, it finds blood on the floor, mm-hmm. finds the evidence of a crime scene. His mother's not there. And he sees the last receipt she wrote is for antifreeze to Ed Gein. He immediately goes to the police. Now, Ed and his confession, the psychiatrists are trying to get at why he killed her. And um, he, they kind of go into, like, you know, why he, why he kills her. And he says, like, this is the psychologist. So I think we can get closer to the reason as to why you did take Bernice's life. Based on what you've told me, Eddie, that you used to joke with her about roller skating, but you can't roller skate. Things marked out in my mind that you applied every excuse or reason to go to see Bernice to buy something, whether or not it was a half pound of shingle nails, a ball of twine, or something, just so you could have conversation. Is that right or wrong, Ed? Well, I believe you're right there. I liked her that way. She was nice. Psychiatrist. Was she like your mother? I think so. Look, you and I should straighten up this particular point. You explained to me that as far as you're personally concerned, there was some thought regarding the resemblance of Bernice and your mother. Is that correct? Yes, there was some. And, um, you know, he's saying, Eddie, I don't believe that your thoughts were directed to her as being a, a deer. And we'll get to that part. I think your thoughts are directed to the fact that she bore some resemblance or relationship to your mother. Which are you more inclined to believe? And he's just like, well, and, it, and you, you read this to the thing is the doctors are kind of putting their ideas out there and Ed just kind of agrees to everything. Kind of leading the witness a little bit. Oh, it's totally leading the witness. But there, this is 1950. This is happening. This is the couple of weeks after the murder that, that they're doing this. And he's like, well, did, did, she ever, did she ever talk to you about your mother? And he doesn't really respond. And uh, the doctor says, Eddie, now that we're trying to clear things up, can you explain the meaning, your reason for taking Bernice? You took Bernice because you wanted her. He didn't say anything. Right. Why did you want her? Well, that must be the reason. 
I don't want to put words or ideas in your head. Oh, that must be the reason. And so kind of like Ed agreed to this. But the doctors were saying she was a chunky, middle-aged, powerful German woman Mm -hmm. like your mother. And that's why you wanted her. That's why you wanted her body. And, um, well, November 16th, 1957, uh, he is arrested later. First of all, um, the officer tries to go to his house. They find he's not there. So where is it? He's at his friend Irene Hill's house where he had coffee and dinner sometime. And that night, after he had killed Bernice Warden, after, and we'll talk about what he did to her body, after he dressed her like a deer, like everybody, all the other hunters out there were doing the bucks he did to a human being. He does that to Bernice Warden. He then goes over to the house of his friend Irene Hill and has a perfectly normal conversation. And they're hanging out. So it's another day at the office for Yeah. For just, just like nothing. And so... Then uh, we get to the evening in November 6, 1957. And so the officer hears that Ed's at the Hills house. The officer's name is Chase. This is from the Deviant book, uh, Harold Schechter's book. The officer's been dispatched to find the suspect. And after making a quick stop at the game farmstead and satisfying himself that no one was home, he'd proceeded to the Hills, where Eddie was known to be a frequent visitor. As soon as the two officers stepped inside the store, they asked Irene if she knew where Eddie was. And she's like, He's sitting in the car right in my driveway, unless he's taken off. He's driving my son downtown to see what's going on. What's going on is the police are investigating Bernie's warden's murder. Sure enough, when Chase, the officer's name, and Spees, the other officer, went around to the house, they found Gein's car still there, engine idling, tailpipe spewing exhaust vapor into the cold. The hill's porch light was burning, and in its glow, Chase could see Eddie sitting behind the wheel of his Ford with Bob Hill, Irene's son, beside him. Chase taps on the driver's window. Keen rolls it down. Eddie, said Chase, I'd like to talk to you. Obediently, Eddie steps out in the yard and followed the two officers to their squad car where he got into the back seat with Spees, the other officer. Positioning himself up front, Chase swiveled to look at the stubble-cheeked little man who sat there smiling weakly, his watery blue eyes peering out from behind the peak of a plaid deer hunter's cap planted sideways on his head. Chase asked Gein exactly how he'd spent the day from the time he woke up to the present moment, and Eddie proceeded to tell him. When he finished, Chase asked him to run through the events of the day one more time, beginning with his visit to Warden's. Gein repeated his account. Now, Eddie, Chase said after a moment, you didn't tell the same story come through there a second time. Eddie blinked once and said, somebody frame me. Framed you for what? asked Chase. Well, Mrs. Warden. Chase leaned closer to his suspect. What about Mrs. Warden? Well, she's dead, ain't she? Dead? Chase exclaimed. How do you know she's dead? Eddie's lopsided grin seemed frozen in place. Well, I heard it. Where'd you hear it? I heard them talking about it, Eddie said, straining to sound nonchalant. By then, whatever doubts Chase had had been entertaining about Gein's involvement had completely evaporated, and he knew he had his man. So, this is when they finally suspect that Ed Gein is the murderer. They come, he's trying to get out of it, and he gets caught in his own lies. 
And so then they go back to the farmhouse. This is from a PhD dissertation by a student named Kiana Glapian in May 2019. FBI Files, a Psychological Comparison of Literary and Real-Life Serial Killers. When police entered the farmhouse of Gein on November 16, 1957, the horrifying discoveries caused Sheriff Art Schley immediately to rush outside and regurgitate. He barfed. <laughs> Deputy Sheriff Arnold Fritz discovered Mary Hogan's face, skin from the su- skull, softened with oil and stuffed inside a paper sack. The three-year-old mystery of Hogan's disappearance had finally been solved. One of the officers noticed an odd-looking soup bowl on the kitchen table. It was the sawed-off, boiled-clean top of a human skull. Detectives also discovered lampshades, belts made out of human skin and decorated with breasts, nipples, and even bracelets made out of human skin. This is November 16, 1957. By November 18th, Monday, the news gets out. This is from the Nina News Record. Nina, Wisconsin, all right. Arrest farmer for killing 11. Believe victims were eaten. Lawmen from several places, including Chicago, were here or in route to question Ed Gein about the skulls and bones because of unsolved killings in their areas. It was reported someone was coming from La Crosse, Wisconsin, with dental x-rays of Evelyn Hartley. The teenage babysitter disappeared in 1953. Police said the man, Ed Gein, had confessed killing Mrs. Bernice Warden, 58, and then raised his hands like claws and snarled, I've been killing for seven years. Believed cannibalism. Washara County District Attorney Earl Colleen said, It appears to be cannibalism. Newspaper clippings about the disappearance of unsolved slayings of a number of Wisconsin women were found in Gein's house, along with child's clothing. That's on the 18th. Stevens Point Journal, 20th of November, 1957. Now they're interviewing Bob Hill, the kid that was sitting next to Ed in the car when the police came. Youth tells of seeing Gein's heads. 16-year-old Bob Hill, a junior at Tri-County High School of Plainfield, said Tuesday that he had seen two of the heads found in the Ed Gein home some time ago. The youth said Gein told him that they'd been sent to him from the Philippines by a cousin, explaining they were shrunken heads. He said he had not noticed any of the other grisly items found by investigators in Gein's home. The youth had been friendly with Gein, going to the movies and attending baseball games with him. Gein was arrested Saturday night at Hill's home at West Plainfield, where the youth's parents run a grocery store and gasoline station. The killer had been friendly with the Hill family and had eaten his evening meal with the Hills Saturday. The body of Mrs. Bernice Warden, Plainfield widow who operated a hardware store in the village, was found hanging in a lean-to off Gein's home Saturday by Arthur Shea of Washara County while Gein was at the Hill home. So they found Bernice Warden's body strung out like a deer, Mm -hmm. beheaded. And this is just, I mean, this is all, this is the first week that this stuff makes it all over the news. And so you're already seeing, they're talking about cannibalism. The police are there already interested in the, because they found all the skulls and, and the different body parts, they start looking for unsolved murders. They found the newspaper clippings of, in Gein's home of other missing. Right. Yeah. And um, he later says it's because he wants to become a detective or what, he's interested in it. But that's not it though. Like also... Other people are jumping in the Ed Gein bandwagon. Almost wed. Woman tells of dates she had with Gein. This is the same uh, issue of the Stevens Point Journal from November 20th, 1957. Sounds like a title of the Inquirer. (laughs) Right. 
Ed Gein, bachelor recluse who has admitted to butchering a Plainfield woman, was, quote, good and kind and sweet, unquote, to the woman who said she almost married him, the Minneapolis Tribune said in a copyrighted interview. Adeline Watkins, 50, who lives with her mother in a small apartment here in Plainfield, said that during a 20-year romance with Gein, he was, quote, so nice about doing things I wanted to do. Sometimes I thought I was taking advantage of him. A Minneapolis Tribune reporter uh, quoted her as saying that she had her last date with Ed. It's February 6, 1955. Quote, that night he proposed to me, not in so many words, but I knew what he meant. Miss Watkins described for the Tribune as a plain woman with graying bangs and horn rim glasses said, quote, I turned him down, but not because there's anything wrong with him. It was something wrong with me. I guess I was afraid I wouldn't be able to live up to what he expected of me. Unquote. And so Imagine you, not living up to Ed Gein's standards. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so they find a house of horrors. They go into his house. Everything's a mess. Everything's dirty. There's crap all over the floor. It's like a hoarder's house. It's a hoarder's house with these weird... Cabinet of curiosities. Right. Lampshade made out of human skin. I mean, everything is filthy except for one room. His, his mother's. His mother's room is kept immaculate. That's the one place that he wouldn't let be disgusting and stuff. And, and, and this is, I mean, this farmhouse, this, this is 1957. There's no electricity. There's no phone. I mean, Ed Gein's farmhouse is a turn of the century, 20th, I mean, turn of the 20th century curiosity at this point. 1957, not to have any electric lights. Not to have any telephone or anything like that. Indoor plumbing. Right. And the police walk in there, and obviously they're barfing because it smells horrible. Bob Hill talks about seeing the shrunken heads. They weren't shrunken heads. They were they were know, real. Real human masks created out of skin that he picked up by, by sneaking into the cemetery. The police do not realize at this point that Ed Gein was a grave robber. They find Mary Hogan's face. They find a mask made from Mary Hogan's face. They find Bernice Warden beheaded. And they find her body gutted. They find her vulva removed. They find a whole bunch of different vulvas, like nine different women's vulvas removed uh, in different bags around the house. They're, uh, some are painted like silver and stuff. He's really into arts and crafts, huh? <laughs> Wait, well, that's the thing. It's the belt made of nipples that he cut off the women's breasts. It and sounds like something from that Ilsa story. Exactly right. But it's also these cannibal headhunting tribes that, you know, after they defeated their enemies, they had also done these kind of things. They, they defile the bodies, and that's how they punish their enemies. And he had done this to these different, and he eventually admits to nine different graves that he robbed. And he only ever admits the two murders. And you see that too in the confession and they're going through the, with the lie detectors and stuff and they ask him, have you taken one life? He says, yes. Have you taken two lives? He says, yes. Have you taken three lives? No. And he, I mean, he, they repeat that a dozen times in the interview. And he's like, I, he, he never admits to any more than two. And he never gives any real details of any of these murders. 
he's like, it's, it's just really fuzzy. You know, he claims that with Bernice Warden, the gun goes off accidentally. Mary Hogan, I mean, the only reason he confessed is because they found her face. You know, and they say like, and he's like, well, if you say, you know, they're like, you killed her. He's like, well, if you say so. You know, it's clear in the confession why they would say he's insane. Because he never, it, you know, he says, I can't remember things. I was in a haze. I felt this spirit. You know, he never acts like he committed these things consciously. He, he complains of headaches, not feeling well while they're doing the confession. And so it, it's interesting because they're kind of putting all this stuff on him. You know, especially they, they put in the idea that he wanted make his mother alive again by being his mother. And that's the... The skin suit. The skin suit. That's why he, uh, you know, created that, you know, fake suit with the breasts and, and the belt and the, like, the half face where uh, it's, it's... Some of the faces he has, they have lipstick on him and stuff. You know, the hair, like, he had gone through. And he's got formaldehyde. And this kind of... We, we talk about Psycho later that Norman Bates had taxidermy as a hobby. You know, Ed Gein wasn't a real taxidermist, but he did have formaldehyde in his house because he did shoot squirrels. And for some of the local kids, he would get the squirrel tails so they could put them on the back of their cars. So real classy. He, yeah, he would like tax, right. They're like, when people put like the testicles in the back of their cars, in Plainfield in the 50s, they were putting squirrel tails and Ed was making them. And so he had the formaldehyde because he was making those squirrel tails as trophies for these kids. And he would use that on some of the skin, but he never really got into it. And in the confession, they ask him about sex with the bodies. Like, did you try to be, you know, he's always mentioned as a necrophiliac, you know, they're like, well, did you, and he's like, no, they smell too bad. He's like, I never had sex with the body because so it smelled too bad. Bernice Warden, they ask him like if, if he was going to have sex with that body. And he's kind of like, yeah, I think so. But then he says he couldn't do it because his head wasn't in the right space. And the doctor asks him, do you know what? You know, he, he claims he's never been with a woman and he's a virgin. And the doctor goes and asks him if he knows what ejaculation is and the whole thing. And he's like, well... I guess, but my head's just not there. Like he, it re, the confession really reads as these doctors saying things to him and him agreeing with it. Just like if you say so, that sounds about right. There's never really anything like I took the gun, I pointed at their head, and I shot it. They ask him for all the names, you know, and they, they'll say the names that he had it said that he may have the graves he've robbed. And they kind of go through the names and he's like, that sounds right. It's just, there's never anything clear in the confession that Ed Gein is like, you know, like when we talked about Jeffrey Dahmer's confession, he goes through He was like an open book. He details. Could, yeah. Ed Gein is basically just agreeing with what the psychiatrists tell him in 1957. And so that's why he does an insanity plea on November 21st. This is five days after they catch him. Like you think how long trials and stuff take now and everything. Five days after they catch him, he's arraigned in Washara County Court on the one count of first-degree murder because they know they got him with evidence on Bernice Warden's murder. 
and he enters a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. By January 1958, he's declared unfit to stand trial, diagnosed with schizophrenia. Ed Gein is committed to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Waupon, Wisconsin, and that's where he's going to stay for 20 years. So now we get into spring in 1958. Ed Gein, I mean, people, reporters come from all over the country to talk about it. And they're going to do an estate sale for Ed Gein. And this is going to be on March 30th, 1958. And so it starts going in the paper, the kind of stuff they're going to sell. It starts to become a thing. The people of Plainfield start getting worried. They're, I mean, first of all, they have thought of Ed Gein as the village idiot, not a murderer. Now they know at least he's killed two people. They suspect him and a dozen others. He was robbing graves and he was defiling the bodies. When they talk about the skin suit of women that he made, that he had the, all the women's different vulvas, and even in the confession, they ask him about it. We're like, well, did you, did you wear those? Did you pretend? Did you want to cut your penis off? And interestingly enough, he's always just like, no, I didn't want to cut my penis off or anything. He's just, you know, did you wear those? Yes. Did you try to have sex with them? Maybe it's, 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 he doesn't, you know, it's all really, um, him either just agreeing or being like, that sounds whatever you say. So you can see why they think that he's unfit to stand trial. He's not unfit to hang out with the Hills or whatever and tell them stories, or he's not unfit to make your, uh, squirrel tail for your car. But when you ask him about his crimes, he's not responding to you. And so, then we get to what is going to be the auction on March 30th, 1958. And 10 days before the auction, somebody goes in and they burn the property. So the police have already confiscated all of the horrible stuff. And the rest is just different things to the house that they're going to sell, farm implements, stuff that the Geens would have used on their farm. And somebody ends up burning it down. To, to stop them from making the money. But it, it doesn't stop really. I guess any- it's to, to put an end to the attraction or people, I guess, murderbilia probably wasn't a thing, but there was probably still enough curiosity throughout the community to say, I got this from Ed Gein's barn. And there ends up being enough curiosity where they hold an auction for the rest of the stuff, even though the house is burned down. Mm-hmm. 2,000 people still show up for the auction of the stuff that is left on March 30th, 1958. July of 1958, four months later, Ed Gein's car, that gets purchased in the auction, the the one that wasn't used in the murder, purchased by Bunny Gibbons for $760 at the auction. It makes its first public appearance in July of 1958 at the Otagami County Fair in Seymour, Wisconsin. Home of the hamburger. (laughs) <laughs> right. And Ed Gein's ghoul car. It's later seen that summer at the Washington County Fair in Slinger before the sheriff eventually set, like, shuts it down. Um, and we don't know what happened to Ed Gein's ghoul car. Yeah, there's some cool posters out there, and I think Cult of Weird did a really cool article about the, the ghoul car. Oh, sure. And we'll, th- we'll be talking about Cult of Weird in, in a little bit. Okay. That's um, Charlie Hintz and Nate Couch's site. And there, that's a, that's a great Wisconsin site for looking for weird stuff called the weird. 
So that his car gets bought at the auction, and that eventually does be like he takes it around. People spend a quarter, and thousands of people around Wisconsin spend their twenty five cents so they can get a picture or they can look at Ed Gein's cool car before it eventually gets shut down in Slinger. April tenth, nineteen fifty nine. Psycho the novel is released, written by Robert Block. He lived in Milwaukee for a while. He was born in Chicago at the time of Ed Gein's. Trial and he, or not trial, but the time of Ed Gaines like capture. He's living in Wyuwiga, Wisconsin, not very far away from Plainfield. And he, within a, you know, he, he writes the book in, in six weeks. And the idea uh, in Psycho is that Norman Bates owns this motel. And he was someone that, I mean, that's even a line from the book. A, a, you know, a boy's best friend is always his mother. Mm. Uh, he has an attachment with this girl who comes in. She's a she just committed a crime, and uh, she tries to stay at the motel that he owns. And you hear him talking to his mother back and forth, and she's like, "Don't talk to that hussy" and stuff like that. And it says all these things. And eventually, uh, the the woman that's staying at the motel is killed, and you find out that Norman Bates did it, but he's dressed as his mother. And that he's a split personality. There's Norman, the, the scared little boy. There's Normal Bates, the, the person that he presents. And then eventually Mary Crane, the, the character who he murders, um, he, has, you know, he has an attachment and attraction to. And there's Norma Bates, his mother, which is the personality of his beloved mother, who he has embalmed her and keeps her in her room like Ed Gein kept Augusta Gein's room perfect. And so Robert Block writes this book, comes out April 10th, 1959. And uh, he, in his autobiography, says, well, I based my story on the situation rather than any person living or dead involved in the Gein affair. Indeed, I knew very little of the details concerning that case and, and virtually nothing about himself at the time. I don't believe that. Yeah. I, when, when I read that, I was like, You'd had to be at least somewhat influenced, if at least not on a subconscious level, just because of the media buzz and only being, you know, 25, 30 minutes. Right. And most writers are avid readers. So to think that he wasn't getting, you know, Stephen's point or... There's no way that he doesn't know a whole bunch of stuff about Ed Gein. He, he knows. And so... He's like, at the time, I decided to write a novel based on the notion that the man next door might be a monster. I set out to create my character from whole cloth. My title derives, of course, from psychotic and also from psychology and psychoanalysis. It was from the latter sources that I sought a rationale for my protagonist, or more precisely, an irrationale. Here's a quote from the book. Norman smiled and allowed himself the luxury of a comfortable shiver. Grotesque but effective, it certainly must have been. Imagining flaying a man alive and then stretching his belly to use it as a drum. How did they actually go about doing that, curing and preserving the flesh of the corpse to prevent decay? For that matter, what kind of mentality did it take to conceive of such an idea in the first place? It wasn't the most appetizing notion in the world, but when Norman half-closed his eyes, he could almost see the scene, this throng of painted, naked warriors wriggling and swaying in unison under a sun-drenched, savage sky, and the old crone couching before them throbbing out a relentless rhythm on a swollen, distended belly of a cadaver. The contorted mouth of the corpse would be forced open, probably fixed in a gaping grimace by clamps of bone, and from it the sound emerged. 
Beating from the belly, rising to the shrunken orifices, forced up to the withered windpipe to emerge amplified and in full force from the dead throat. For a moment, Norman could almost hear it. So that, I mean, right there, that's the idea of the savages creating the human skin drum. That's right out of Ed Gein's playbook. Mm-hmm. And the obsessive relationship with the mother, and that being, I mean, Norman kills Mary Crane. It's Marion Crane in the movie that comes out in 1960, but in the book it's Mary. He kills her because his mother, the personality of his mother in his head, doesn't want her uh, to be part of Norman's life. And so, I mean, all these things, the, um, the relationship with the mother, the killing, the obsession with things like skin and stuff, that's straight out of Ed Gein. I mean, Robert Block is a Pulp Fiction author of the kind who would write the stories that would fascinate Ed. Robert Block, uh, like August Derleth, is part of the Lovecraft circle, and they had exchanged letters with H.P. Lovecraft. With H.P., yeah. And so interestingly enough that, you know, Robert Block's this Pulp Fiction author, and he's the one that, one of the biggest reasons that we still talk about Ed Gein today is because of Psycho. And he wrote the book, the, the, the movie. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock buys the rights for $9,500 or whatever. The studio thinks it's going to be crap. They think it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, so he says, fine, I'll use my crew for my TV show. I'll film it cheap in black and white. And he does it, and it becomes a gigantic hit when it's released in June of 1960. And it's considered one of his best films. It's one of the biggest movies, horror movies of all time. And it eventually becomes, you know, a classic. And so that's the, that's the first of the uh, Hollywood films based on Ed Gein. And this was only three or four years after Gein. Oh, yeah. The movie comes out June 19th, yeah. 1960. Yeah. So that's very, very short turnaround for a movie. Right. From a book adaptation, especially. And uh, right, because they film it with a TV crew so that he can get it fast. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a, you know, a gigantic hit. It's obviously, I mean, the, um, the woman that plays Marion Crane in the movie, Janet Lee, uh, she's Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, who you know, becomes a screen queen in her own right uh, in the Halloween series. Um, it makes a, a whole career for Anthony Perkins where he eventually goes on to play Norman Bates in, in three more movies in the 1980s. It makes Robert Block a rich man and uh, a famous, I mean, even more famous author than he was moving from Pulp Fiction to novels now that he's got this, you know, psycho. And Alfred Hitchcock, I mean, this is Alfred Hitchcock's follow-up to North by Northwest, which is one of his big, North by Northwest is a huge event film. There's obviously the famous scenes in North by Northwest with Cary Grant's running away um, from a crop duster that's firing guns on him. The, uh, the, the climax of the movie is this uh, recreation they made of Mount Rushmore. So Alfred Hitchcock makes this huge budget, hugely successful film in 1959, and he follows it up with a tiny budget of what he can get because he believes in Psycho so much. I mean, that's the first slasher film. It ends up changing the face of horror movies and influences everything after. And so uh, that's really, Ed Gein gave us the modern slasher film. So thanks, Ed. Unbelievable. And also in 1960, they, do, they, they find some bones 
on Keen's property. And they're trying to figure out who it's from. I mean, Ed just says it's one of the bots. Like, he, he was just, after he took the skin off and stuff of some of the graves he robbed, they just reburied them. And also, they uh, exhumed some of the corpses that he said he dug up their graves. They wanted to make sure that he wasn't lying when he actually said he didn't kill people. So they go through the names, and they do several of the graves that he said that he dug up. And they go look and see verify they, that they the bones verify. are actually missing. They were gone. Yeah. And so, you know, this kind of stuff happens. Now, in 1962, they end up burying the rest of the bones discovered on Gein's property. They don't know who they're from. And it ends up um, just be buried in an unmarked grave in the Plainfield Cemetery. Now, 10 years later, Ed Gein's psychiatrists finally say that they think he's competent to go on trial for murder. And so they put him on trial for the murder of Benice Warden. Within a week, uh, the judge finds him guilty, but also finds him insane. So he's guilty, but he's still staying at the, uh, the hospital for the criminally insane because they don't want to put him in a regular population because they still think he's crazy. Now, the thing about being declared criminally insane is that if you're ever cured, you could be freed. Is that true? 1974, Ed Gein tries to find out. He files for a petition that he has fully recovered his mental health and is fully competent, and there's no reason that he should remain in any hospital. So he files a petition. They eventually deny it. They're never going to let him out after, you know, the kind of stuff he did and, the, and what he was. But it was just interesting that he was, he wanted to go see the world. And he had like a plan of that he was going to go on vacation around the world. And so um, he says he's going to do that. And they eventually just, it doesn't work out. And so the judge uh, then says like, you're not getting out of here. But it, it was interesting enough that in 1974, he tried to he take He actually advantage. tried to petition the court to... I'm no longer insane. Yeah. Uh, 1974 is also notable because Texas Chainsaw Massacre is released on October 11th. And, of course, Texas Chainsaw Massacre starts with, the film you're about to see is true. So that was the first kind of found film. <laughs> right. So it's funny. That the so film so about- he, he spawned two... Film genres. Well, I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hooper, I mean, he makes it for very little money in Austin, Texas. He's got people from the University of Texas. John Larroquette from Night Court in the John Larroquette show, he's a narrator on it because he's at the University of Austin with Toby Hooper. And this little movie becomes a huge hit midnight film. And Leatherface is wearing a mask made of human skin. And the inside of Leatherface's family's home is full of bodies dressed like deer. Bodies, you know, dressed up like the Ed Gein House of Horrors. So that's the next Ed Gein influencing cinema. And this whole midnight slasher film uh, is something that Gein was also um, inspired. And they just released a new Texas Chainsaw Massacre on Netflix too, a sequel. And so there's been... I believe five or six different Texas Chainsaw Massacre films, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, 3, 
The Next Generation. Let's say there's they, been a couple of reboots. Yeah, they made a remake in 2003. Then there's a movie called Leatherface they made after that. And then the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre that just came out. So Toby Hooper, the original um, writer and director, he died a couple of years ago. And he also wasn't involved after Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which he made as a comedy instead of a horror film. So the, um, the studio wasn't quite ready for that. But it's also Ed Gein influencing an entire new, like 14 years after Psycho, then this movie is made to terrorize a new generation. 1978, Ed has moved to Mendota Mental Health Institute in Madison. And so uh, for the a and True, True Crime blog, they spoke with Dr. Gail Saltz, clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the New York Presbyterian Hospital while Cornell School of Medicine. Now, Ed Gein was the perfect patient in Mendota Mental Hospital. And they were asking her, why do you think he was so docile? Why do you think they thought he was a, the ideal patient? She says, somebody who was a child in an authoritarian home, Gein's mother, Augusta, was domineering and told him that women and sex were evil, may feel familiarity or even compelled to repeat what was essentially a trauma for them. Living under very stringent rules without freedoms and being told what to think and do is very difficult for children, and some assimilate to the conditions, even though they may be angry about them and experience it as an ongoing chronic trauma. Then they replay that childhood trauma as adults and reparticipate in the conditions as a way of managing and processing it. Essentially, they are drawn to it. They ask her, doctors diagnose Gein as a schizophrenic. Based on your knowledge of Gein's life, do you agree? She says, obviously, we all look what he said. He must have been sick to do what he did, but that's not necessarily true. Psychodynamically, these murders were driven by his relationship with his mother and by going after figures like her and destroying them. He would attempt to subsume them by taking their parts and making them part of him. Still, from a mental health perspective, we don't know if his crimes had to do with the lack of a moral compass or a pleasure in making others suffer. That's all psychopathy which is different than schizophrenia, where you would expect psychosis. Psychosis is where you can't tell fake from real. Specific delusions and hallucinations that make it impossible for someone to understand right from wrong and over time a cognitive decline. So when the uh, state hospital for the criminally insane, which is still the greatest name, goes down in 1978, Ed gets moved to uh, Mendota Mental, and he is an ideal patient. They even have dances on Saturday nights. And so psychology uh, grad students used to volunteer to work the dances on Saturday nights. And one of my sisters, Allison Jornlin from Milwaukee Ghosts, one of her psych professors from UW-Milwaukee was one of the people who would intern and then she would go dance at the dances with the inmates at Mendota Mental in the early 1980s. And she said one night she danced a bunch with this older gentleman who was super nice, completely gentlemanly, and a good dancer or whatever, or nice. How tall was he? <laughs> well, that, right. Did he lead? I don't know. Um, but she would tell her class about it. And then she would say like, oh, he, what a great dancer. What a nice guy. And they would say, that's Ed Gein. And she'd be freaked out because he had done such crazy, sick things. Sure. However, she could, couldn't reconcile that. That's the same with the people of Plainfield. How do they reconcile the fact that Eddie Gein, who was just this harmless, quiet weirdo, 
ends up being not only a killer, but a grave robber making human skin furniture. And that's what she said was the, the kind of thing that weirded her out. 1984, he dies. July 26th, he dies of respiratory failure due to lung cancer uh, at Mendota Mental Health. And then they eventually bury him in Plainfield Cemetery. However, that's not it for his influence. 1988, Silence of the Lambs is released. Ends up being a big book. Even bigger movie. Valentine's Day, obviously, it's a big romance. 1991, Silence of the Lambs, the movie is released. And the character Jamie Gum, known as Buffalo Bill in the book and the movie, is based on Ed. And he is killing larger women in order to make a skin suit for himself so that he can become a woman and then live his mother's fantasy. And they talk about this in the book of being like Miss Sacramento. or like Her fantasy was to be a beauty queen. They don't talk about it in the movie. But funny enough that even the name Clary Starling uh, the character that Jodie Foster played in the movie, the lead FBI agent, has a bird last name. And Thomas Harris uh, did that as an homage to Robert Block and Psycho, Mary Crane, in the original book. So he picked a bird last name as an homage to Psycho. I mean, that's Gein influencing this idea of a transsexual killer. And that is something that, if, if you read the confession the psychiatrists keep on asking him about, did you want to cut your penis and testicles off? Did you, you know, did you want to be a woman? And they kind of put it on him. And it's interesting enough, this is from a, uh, a paper called Ed Gein and the Figure of a Transgendered Serial Killer by K.E. Sullivan from a, a Jump Cut, a review of contemporary media in 2000. And he argues how incorrectly um, that kind of Silence of the Lambs uses the Ed Gein transsexual connection. And he says um, Ed Gein was uh, mostly probably psychotic, but not a necrophile. And although the personality inventory they used indicated he had a feminine identification, none of the reports profiled him as a transvestite. In fact, his psychiatrist maintains that his desire for female body parts was a manifestation of his attempts not to be his mother, but to find a substitute for her in the form of a replica or body that could be kept indefinitely. He wanted to bring her body back to life, the only way to bring her soul back. Further, the evaluation stressed that Gein was highly suggestible and had trouble distinguishing between what he was remembered and what he was told, as we just said. Here's an exchange he has with uh, his polygraph specialist. Do you have any recollection, Eddie, of taking any of these female parts, the vagina specifically, and holding it over your penis to cover the penis? Ed, I believe that's true. You recall doing that with the vaginas of the bodies of other women? That I believe I do remember. That's right. Would you ever put on a pair of women's panties over your body and then put some of these vaginas over your penis? That could be. Okay. So that's not specifically Ed admitting to anything. You know, and, and then you get into his confession. And in the confession, they're asking him, how is your recollection on what you previously told me that you would be in these dazes, that you would put the hair and the scalp over your head, plus, as you refer to them, the vaginas? Ed's like, I've been thinking about that too. They're now them doctors, you know, we, we were talking quite a while in the hospital, and whether that got started about me talking about those heads, you see, I'd read stories that there were these head hunters. They take the heads and then I think a, a fetish, a tree or something, what they call it, somewhere they have a clearing that they can get in the jungle somewhere and they build a house like it, it's like a worshiping house or something 
a house of worship? Yes. And they always try to have a tree right next to it in that clearing. The ones they've been fighting with or, or anything, you know, they're cannibalistic. They dismember the bodies and they hang them on the trees. I was just wondering if that they could have been the, probably the start of this here. Well, I know, but what I'd like you to answer or correct is, and then Ed goes in, these witch doctors, they do that a lot. They had the hair, you know, and everything over them. I'm so dizzy. But, and, and then he starts to get sick. And he goes, well, you might be right in what you said before, and they might be right. You all have to get an idea, and then you figure them out. So when they're asking Ed about whether he really wanted to be a woman, he says, I'm doing these things because I'm trying to emulate these witch doctors and cannibals and stuff. And they come back with, well, yeah, but were you wearing vaginas over these over your penis? And also the reason he painted some of them is because some of them were turning green. That's... That's foul. He painted them because otherwise they turn green. But, you know, and so that's what that guy in that, in that paper in 2000 is arguing that. It wasn't that he was trying to become another gender. It was that he was trying to preserve, preserve his, his mother. mother. Right. And he even tries to get at that. And they start saying, and so this idea that Ed Gein wanted to be a woman, um, and that's what caused him to kill people, is doesn't seem to stand up to rigor, like yeah. rigorous psychiatric detail. And so then, uh, I mean, it's obviously Sansa Lambs is a huge hit. Jamie Gum, you know, puts his penis and balls between his legs and it's the whole thing. Right, <laughs> this whole thing. And, and it's a gigantic hit. It's sequels and stuff like that. It makes Anthony Hopkins a gigantic star. It wins Best Picture at the Oscars, Best Actor, Best Actress for Jodie Foster, Best Director. Like it's the first horror movie to win all of those Oscars. And so, I mean, that's another way that Ed influences culture. Uh, Slayer has a song. Uh, off their Seasons of the Abyss album called Dead Skin Mask. And this is interesting. They've got like a little kid's voice in that song. And I remember hearing this on the radio. There's a radio station called 93 QFM in Milwaukee when I was growing up. And they had a show called Metal Shop. They would play metal at Sunday nights. And I just leave the radio on. I fall asleep to it. Metal Shop's playing Dead Skin Mask by Slayer. And I wake up and I hear it. And I wake up right at the end. It's like, dance with the dead in my dreams. And you have this like, little voice go, hello, Mr. Keen. Listen to their hallowed screams. Mr. Keen, the dead have taken my soul. I don't want to play anymore, Mr. Keen. Dance with the dead in my dreams. Mr. Keen, this isn't fun anymore. And Tom Araya, the bass player of Slayer, has a fascination with serial killers. That's why he wrote the song. But it's so interesting that like Ed liked kids and never heard them, that they would specifically use that to make their songs scary. Extra creepy. Yeah, and, and they, they write that in 1989. By uh, June 2000 is the next time like Ed appears in the news because his gravestone is stolen from the Plainfield Cemetery. Uh, May of 2001. Now, before that, as far as the gravestone goes, people would go to the Plainfield Cemetery and they would chip off a stone from Ed Gein's gravestone. So if you actually see a picture of his stone, you'll see that it's kind of disfigured and chipped oh. away at. People would actually go there, chip off a little sl sliver of Gein's grave and put it in their pocket and carry it home. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Well, I, well somebody eventually didn't and just somebody want the took, stone. took the whole thing. Yeah. The whole damn thing. And so um, they take it. A year later, it's recovered uh, in Seattle. 
in possession of the Ed Gein fan club founder, Shane Bugby. Um, the Ed Gein fan club founder. Yeah, he seems like an interesting character. Fine. I don't know if he's Shane's the kind of guy you want to hang out with. 2006, Mike Fisher, who inherited Ed Gein's property uh, from his grandfather, who was a Sun Prairie real estate developer, bought it just to plant trees on. And so they didn't try to sell it as a farm or anything. The guy buys just plants dream on. Anyway, Mike Fisher, his grandson, lists the land for sale on eBay for a quarter million dollars under the heading Ed Gein's Farm, the real deal. Four days later, eBay pulls the listing because you can't sell murder memorabilia on eBay and they considered trying to sell the farm. Um, murder memorabilia. And, well, that's not the last time Ed's in the news then. So, now I don't remember if, did you ever see the episode of Ghost Adventures or they called it like Haunted Items or whatever, where uh, Zach Baggins ends up buying this cauldron by Ed Gein? I haven't seen that episode, but yeah, I know he had uh, a separate series from Ghost Adventure where he'd go to go over the stuff that he was putting in his museum and kind of the backstory. Right. And so uh, February 28th, 2015... Zach Baggins buys this cauldron, which is supposedly Ed Gaines. And, and originally, the person that hears about the cauldron and starts posting about it is the guy, are the guys from Call to Weird. That's Charlie Hintz mm -hmm. and uh, Nate Couch. And so in Call to Weird, he writes, according to Dan McIntyre, the cauldron's current owner, his grandfather, Evelyn Mayer, purchased the cauldron from the Gein estate sale held in 1958, along with some gardening tools. She painted the cauldron and planted flowers in it as a memorial for Gein's victims. McIntyre says it wasn't until 50 years later that he learned the shocking reality of the inconspicuous flower pot that ended up in his parents' garage. Hollis Brown, a friend of the McIntyre family, had been a neighbor of Ed Gein's. Brown told McIntyre that after the police had finished photographing the crime scene, they were feeling sick to their stomachs. So he and another neighbor by the name of Howard Llewellyn helped remove the bodies and various remains. It was then that Hollis first saw the black cauldron in a shed, crusted with dried blood and guts, besides tubs and barrels filled with what he described as bloody human entrails. When he saw the cauldron again many years later in the garage, Hollis immediately recognized it. Pale and noticeably shaken, he told his son Carnath about the cauldron, saying he saw something he had not seen in 50 years, and he wished he didn't remember where he saw it. Okay. I, none of those names show up in any of the Ed Cain books. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know about that one. Well, I've, uh, I mean, so April 2017, it appears on Deadly, Deadly Possessions. And Zach Baggins talks about it and all the people who come close to it, tragedy befalls them. It goes into Zach Baggins Haunted Museum in October 2017. And there's like a little Ed Gein cauldron room. I saw it in February 2019. And I don't believe it. You I'm know. not saying that everything in Zach Baggins Museum doesn't, isn't, isn't real. What but, don't what don't you believe that it was? I don't from I, the the Gein Farm or the story believe, behind it, or I don't believe it's from the Gein Farm. There's no, I mean, you got to if something is supposed to have some kind of provenance that you're going to say uh, came from this auction and everything that all this random guys like I remember seeing that thing. It's a cold. It just looked like this. It's a black pot, and it's pretty big though. It's just a big soup kettle, right? I mean, yeah, but it's. I mean, it's big enough, like, you could fit in there. Like, a person could fit in there. And so, like, how big is this flower pot? Like, I just remember standing next to it, 
I think I had a picture of it somewhere, you know, and I just, I was just like, I, yes, he, what did he do? Did he boil the bodies in there? Did he, is it, did he boil the skin off? Like, what did he do inside this cauldron? You know, and it didn't burn in the fire. Like, was it in the, was it in the house? Was it in the lean-to off the property? Like, there's so much unexplained about it. And none of it's detailed with any kind of proof whatsoever. And to where it just shows up in 2015 and somebody's emailing, you know, Cult of Weird saying, hey, I know you have a whole Ed Gein section. Here's something interesting about it. Maybe people want to buy it. Anyway, you guys should go to the Haunted Museum in Las Vegas and find out for yourself if you think that Ed Gein's cauldron is real. It might be. I just, I did not buy it. It's possible, but... The chain of evidence is there. For example, one time I, I tried to sell a, um, a keyboard signed by Elton John that was used at his residency at like Caesar's Path in Las Vegas, right? Mm -hmm. And so for some, a collector to buy it, a keyboard that was used by, it was given to us by the rep from Yamaha or whatever. So it's obviously, we knew where it came from. The people at Yamaha signed off that it was Elton John's. It's signed by Elton John. It was used at the residency and all this guy, like the evidence it took to be able to try to sell it to a collector mm -hmm. and the, like, the chain know, of custody, the right, provenance. You just, you just had to be really. has to hold up to scrutiny. Yeah. You, you had to make sure. a big black pot. Right. From 50 years ago. Uh, I just. Yeah, 70 at this point, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, okay, if that's it. But you guys should check it out for yourself uh, at Ed Gein's Cursed Cauldron, you might see at uh, Zach Baggins Haunted Museum. And then April 9th, 2021, Paranormal uh, Investigation premieres on Discovery+. Plus. This is from the Daily Mail uh, in the UK, published April 8th, 2021. Discovery Plus exclusive, Ed Gein, the real psycho. Cindy Casa and Steve Shippey investigate the Gein property. Knives bought at an auction, Gein's jail cell, and believe they make contact with Ed's ghost. Shippey claims he hears Ed Gein say, put on the suit. Shippey asks Gein if he's referring to his infamous skin suit. Yeah. The serial killer spirit allegedly responds to the documentary. Casa says his mother will never let him have a voice or thought of his own. It was always from her. She's evil, and as a young child, I'm sad for him because I don't think he was born this way. I feel like she created a monster. And so, uh, even today, they see they have Ed Gein's, Ed Gein's ghost haunting the town of Plainfield. What, do you, what did you think about that, Jeff? I watched it with a skeptical eye. They went to the old Worden's Hardware, which is now just a storage facility. Sure. And they did their exploration and investigation there. And that's where they picked up the, uh, I think it was a ghost box session, where they got the responses. Put on the suit. Put on the suit. <laughs> so, seeing that it was made for TV, you always have to take that with a grain of salt. Right. And they also went to the, the Gein farm, and uh, I believe Cindy picked up on that there were, there were more bodies, which we know that there was more bodies discovered during the investigation that were linked to the graveyard. But right. she also thinks there may have been more victims. But again, it's made for TV. It's unsubstantiated. And I guess that's legend at this point. Right. So maybe if you're psychic, you can head out to Plainfield and find for yourself. To so see if you uh, catch a note advice. on Plainfield. The Plainfield locals 
you know, small town. Yeah. It's generational. They don't take kindly to the uh, Gein legend trippers. Well, it's it's hard not to because like you got to go through Plainfield to get from like Madison to Green Bay if you're not taking the interstate, right? And so if you're going to a Packer game, you're not going to take the interstate because it's going to be way too full or whatever. So you you take the uh, the state highways, and so you, we always end up going through Plainfield. And I can't help it every single time I drive through Plainfield. What do I say? Hey, Ed. Like, what do you, I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, it's of course. part of it now. Of course. And the thing is, the Warden's Hardware, the building's still there. So we never talked about what happened to the tombstone. So it was recovered. And now I believe it is in like the evidence storage or long-term storage of the Washera County Sheriff's Department. So you can't even go see his grave. I believe Augusta... And the brother's grave is still there that and you that's can where visit. He's, buried next to he's still he's still he's still buried there, but he doesn't have a headstone there. And then as far as his farmstead, as you mentioned, um it was burned down. Mysterious fire. Some say lightning. I say it was more like more than likely somebody trying to put an end to the Gein spectacle. Yeah, I mean, you have you have people from all over the country coming into your town to talk about this stuff, and and also the Gein Farm. It was a ways out of town. It still is. So in that area of Plainfield, it's cranberry marshes, it's deer hunting woods. My friend's dad has a piece of deer hunting property, probably two miles from there. He used to ride motorcycles at Deer Cues Park, which is probably only about five miles from there. And if you didn't know. It was Gein's land. You you would drive right past it. Sure. So it is private property. So keep off. But if you have a quarter million dollars, it could be yours. You know, it's probably good good hunting land. Right. It was for him. It was it was for him. <laughs> exactly. And and you know, we've been talking about Gein for almost two hours here. We didn't even talk about his favorite restaurant. What was his favorite restaurant? Chick fil A. Oh, the Geeners. The Geeners. And what is a Geener, Mike? Well, that's a that's an Ed Gein joke. That is, I mean, and those were popular things in the late fifties and sixties. Sixties, probably, just a little gallows humor to take the kind of the edge off of what a heinous crime and what a ghoul Ed Gein was. Well, and also this idea that this could happen in a small town. You talk about the idyllic 1950s we have. I mean, Happy Days takes place in Milwaukee, right? This idea of innocence, this post-war innocence. Mm -hmm. And now you find out that it's not just a crime, not a crime of passion, not the kind of thing that people can understand. It is... Something more deranged, more twisted. It's psycho. It's psychopathic. And some believe that there may have been a supernatural element to it. And here on the Wisconsin Legends podcast, we don't shy away from that. Some say that, you know, like Cindy said, she's evil. As a young child, I'm sad for him because I don't think he was born this way. I feel she created a monster. And I believe that she believes that Augusta was kind of the puppet master beyond the grave for what Ed did. Sure. Well, and he said he felt like some kind of force was compelling him, uh, himself, and that mm-hmm. he heard her voice. And so if you would think that Augusta would be the 
cruel ghost or whatever who would drive him to kill the antithesis of her, Bernice Warden or Mary Hogan, then that would be the that would be the thought that she was she was spurning him on from the grave. And you know, it's interesting you mentioned the Geeners mm-hmm. and the jokes because there's a famous documentary director by the name of Errol Morris. And Errol went to University of Wisconsin in the late 1960s. He made Thin Blue Line about the West Memphis Three. He made The Fog of War, which is an Academy Award-nominated film. Uh, he made Dr. Death. Er- Errol Morris is a... Did he do the one that... Um, what was a Vietnam film? The Fog of War. That was Robert... That, Mac- okay, that... Robert, it was interviews with Robert McNamara. Okay. And so... Um, I believe that inspired Apocalypse. No, that's what I was... Oh, you're thinking of... The Ward Home? I might have to check that. So Errol Morris goes to Wisconsin in the late 60s, eventually becomes a filmmaker in the 1970s. And he decides that he wants to make a film in Ed Gein. And he ends up living in Plainfield for close to a year. And this is a guy, I mean, he did his graduate work in philosophy at UC Berkeley. And this is from the On Wisconsin Alumni Magazine. It's called Truth, Death, and Taxidermy. By the early 70s, Morris was doing graduate work at UC Berkeley. He decided to write his thesis on the insanity plea, and he secures a letter of introduction from the head of the School of Criminology to the superintendent at the hospital where Gein was incarcerated. Morris traveled to central Wisconsin, where he moved in with Gein's former neighbors and conducted several interviews with himself. He goes, one truly surreal experience was discovering that the superintendent was as crazy as anybody I was talking to in the hospital. Wow. His perception was cemented by a conversation in which the head of the institution insisted that Gein was not truly a cannibal because even though he ate people, he didn't enjoy it. Okay, Morris thought to himself, I was entering this sort of strange, surreal world of Looney Tunes. But he liked Gein. I found him really strange and funny. Perverse, ironic, not stupid, crazy. But not stupid, says Morris. And then he's going to work on this film in 1976, in Plainfield, with a director named Werner Herzog. Now, if you guys have seen The Mandalorian, he's the guy with the German accent. That's the bad guy in the first season of The Mandalorian. He's the bad guy in the first Tom Cruise, Jack Reacher movie. He's this famous German director. He made Klaus Kinski. He worked with Agira Ratha God. He made Bad Lieutenant with Nicolas Cage. What was my favorite documentary by him? Which one? The one with um, Timmy Treadwell. Oh, yes. Grizzly Man. That is the most unfortunate, unintentional comedy there is <laughs> right. for a documentary. And, but, and, so, and so Werner Herzog, and he shot a movie in Plainfield in the 1970s. I did not know this. Which wasn't based on Ed Gein, but he originally, him and Errol Morris were going to work together on something. And there's this interview with them. They say, Errol Morris is like, cannibals can turn friends into enemies, go figure. And Errol Morris goes, the movie Psycho is based on Ed Gein. Uh, Robert Block lived in Wyuwiga, about 20 miles. And Werner Herzog's like, Errol wanted to know more about the grave robberies because Ed Gein not only murdered people, he also excavated freshly buried corpses at the cemetery. And he dug up graves in a pretty perfect circle. And the very center of this circle was the grave of his mother. And Errol kept wondering, did he excavate his mother and use her flesh and skin for some sculptures and the things in the home? And Errol Morris laughs. He's like, well, it was an innocuous question. So Werner Herzog's like, the only way to find out 
and he's probably saying this in a German accent, right? I proposed, <laughs> let's go to Plainfield, grab a shovel and dig at night. And he, he shows up in Plainfield, Wisconsin. He's doing a film in Alaska. He drives from Alaska to Plainfield to visit Errol Morris, who's, who was living at the time in Plainfield with Ed Gein's next door neighbors, Beth and Carol Gear. And um, Werner Herzog says like, uh, you didn't show up. We had a date, September 10th. I said, I'm going to be there and you will be there. And you didn't show up. And Errol Morris is like, you're right. And Werner Herzog's like, I would have dug, even though Errol wasn't there. I was kind of scared because people open fire easily in the town. And Errol Morris is like, I had been living there. I became with friends with Dr. Uh, George Arndt, who wrote a book called A Community's Reaction to a Horrifying Event, which was a compendium of Ed Gein jokes. Uh, I befriended Dr. Arndt, and together we drove to Plainfield Cemetery. He had a very, very big Cadillac. And it reminds me, actually, of a scene in your movie, because Dr. Arndt and I put our ears to the ground in the vicinity of the Gein graves, looking for hollow areas in the earth. And Errol Morris like, Dr. Arndt, who was quite mad, I should tell you at least one of his Ed Gein jokes. And he goes, why did Ed Gein keep his chairs covered overnight? And Werner Herzog's like, I don't know. And Errol goes, to keep them from getting goose pimples. <laughs> oh, man. But the thing is, they were going to dig up Augusta Gein's body. Werner Herzog and Errol Morris, two major directors who, whose films get released all over the world. And Werner Herzog's Can you like, imagine the headlines if they would have got caught? Oh, my God. He's like, I showed up in Plainfield. And Errol Morris is like, and so I had this horrible realization. He's actually going to do it. And I got scared. I had this picture, you know, I always really, I probably still am trying to please my mother. I'd already been thrown out of these various graduate schools. I was a ne'er-do-well and down for the count, and I saw my life flashing before my eyes. I saw myself arrested with the Germans. I saw this full moon. I saw the Plainfield police. I saw the police photographers, and I saw myself being led away with the Germans in handcuffs as a complete disgrace. So this is an opportunity to apologize, and I apologize for not showing up. And Werner Herzog's, like, they didn't talk for years because he had come down to Plainfield to meet Errol Morris to dig up the body of Augusta Gein. And because Errol Morris chickened out, Werner Herzog wasn't able to do it, and they got into a fight where they uh, had an interview together 35 years later where they finally forgave each other. This is from Believer magazine. Now, I know Werner, he's very deadpan. Do you yes. think this was just a put on or do you think he really had the I think in the 1970s he would have been willing to do it because what he put his cast and crew through when they made that this movie called Agira Wrath of God in the on the Amazon River mm -hmm. the way they shot it it's from 1972 and people talk about this film like it's um well, like they talk about uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Apocalypse Now. Mm -hmm. like Martin Sheen has a heart attack on the set of Apocalypse Now. Like people almost die. And that's what happened on the set of that film in 1972. So four years later, would he go down? If he drove all the way from Alaska to Plainfield, Wisconsin? He um, went there for a reason. He went there to dig up that body. Wow. And so that's a story I'd never heard about. Ed that's Gein crazy. <laughs> so. Now, what was Ed Gein's mattress made out of? I'm not sure. Mammary foam. Oh, oh, oh. that's a good one. That's a good and that's one. all the gainers I got for the night. All right, that's a hey. But if if you can find Dr. Aaron's book about a town reacts to a horrific tragedy, uh, you might be able to get some more gainers for yourself. But 
Yeah, that's the story of Ed Gein. We try to get as comprehensive as possible so you guys would have a good understanding beyond the legend into the facts and some of the paranormal behind the history of one of Wisconsin's most notorious murderers. If you guys would ever like to take a ghost tour or learn more about what I do, please visit AmericanGhostWalks.com. And you can find me at Badgerland Legends on Facebook and Instagram and BadgerlandLegends.com. Fantastic. And we'll haunt you guys next time on Wisconsin Legends. Hey guys, real quick, this is Mike from Wisconsin Legends Podcast coming at you, letting you know that Jeff and I will be working on Season 2 of Wisconsin Legends coming up right after this Halloween 2022. So please, if you go to WisconsinLegendsPodcast.com, you can go to the bottom of the screen and hit subscribe, and we'll tell you when the new episodes are out, or you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts, you will find Wisconsin Legends.